to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We are going to read from verse 17 to verse 20. And we're not going to get through all those verses. We'll be talking about a specific portion, but I want to read all of it for a reason, and we'll talk about that. Um. So, uh, verse 17, Ephesians 1, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your uh, your hearts, this is English Standard Version, enlightened, that you may know what is the hope unto which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance that is in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Stop there. And as we begin to uh, cover these specific attributes of uh, salvation, uh, you know, that Paul enumerates in this portion of chapter one, when you're considering these things, you have to concede and consider how they're, you know, pointing directly back to the points that he's already been making uh, concerning salvation, uh, salvation that we've received in Christ, that God has actually, as it says in nine and 10 verses nine and 10, he had summarized in, in, his beloved son fully everything pertaining to the fullness of time. He summarized it all and bestowed it in the person of Christ. And when we read the phrase here that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what that helps, it helps us to understand if we recognize that, Paul is desiring for an internal recognition, a, a heart recognition of an in, internal and eternal reality, something that's already present, already effectual, already governing the soul as a present abiding power. His desire for the church is not that that may take place. His desire, knowing that it is taking place through the work of the spirit is that the eyes of the heart in which that relationship in which salvation is effectually uh, abounding that that soul that has such a participation in that eternal reality would become aware of it and aware of it as it is not be taught by men, not be taught by religious uh, philosophy or man's vain philosophy, what it means to be saved, what it means to be born again. That's what we've received in Christianity is man's ideas with regard to salvation. What Paul wants is that directly from God himself for man to see and experience as a comprehension of the heart, something directly from God's perspective, not from man's, not from doctrine. 
He wants the eyes of the heart to be flooded with the light that is absolutely from God so that that soul would rest in the assurance of what God has wrought in it instead of seeking all the methodologies and means by which men tell you to pursue and attempt to achieve the thing that God in his son has already achieved in you. It, you know, what comprehension does is it makes the soul capable of sitting, resting, abiding, continuing in something that is real instead of continually believing that something's missing and lacking, that there's always something that is yet yet uh, in the future, in the distance, waiting for us to go grab it like a gold ring. you know. But to realize, not just through the presentation of the gospel, because there is that too. Paul talks about the hope of the gospel. Do not be swayed by the hope of the gospel or be deceived from the hope of the gospel, but standing fast. But what we're talking about here in these verses is that God himself would teach us from the inside that he would unveil the soul in which all things of God abide to the all things that abide there and see them as they truly are, see them in the form in which they are truly bestowed, and that is spirit and life. Not, I mean, there's a difference, and this is one of the things that's been on my mind lately. There's a difference between being partakers and being producers. And in Christ and in, in, in the work of grace and the work of salvation, we have become partakers of the divine nature partakers of the grace of God. We're not producers. That's what we strive to be because of what we're taught, what men tell us. We are partakers. The soul is a passive uh, vessel that basically is dependent upon the activity and action of another power, of another, to work in it, do in it, make known in it what only is the uh, what is in the power of God or another power to do. God by his spirit is the only one that can do in the soul um, what is eternally certain and sure. The spirit of God works upon that basis of what he has done and makes the soul aware. It just basically like you do in the morning time. You take the curtain and you just, pull them so that the light shines in and you're able to see what is there. You're able to see the day that is dawn. You're able to see the reality that you've wakened to. And that's what the revealing of Christ is. It is a soul becoming awakened and aware, and cognizant and um, of a reality that it is partaking of by the work and grace of God. And so we'll look in this particular lesson today at the calling and the hope into, into which we have been called. Uh, hopefully we'll get to both of those. Um, also the word invited, we've called it the invitation because that the word called also means invitation. 
And for those of us who have come to be found in Christ, to be born again, this above invitation, uh, as it is called, has already been received. We are partakers and recipients of an above invitation. We have received that uh, bidding of the, of the Spirit. And as those who have received that calling, we wait and are dependent upon the spirit of truth to unveil our hearts to the divine truth uh, that fills and defines the realm of our state of being, that what it means to be in a new creation. That whole, I mean, you know, when we talk about a realm of reality, I mean, we're talking about something that is eternal in its measure. And the spirit of God desires to show us the, as Ephesians will talk about, the length and the depth and the breadth of the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts, the love of God that has been given to us in Christ. And that is synonymous with him saying that you may know the hope into which you've been called, that you may know the salvation that God has given to you. These are just multiple ways he says the same thing, but we have to understand he is always calling the church and calling not only Paul by his gospel, but the spirit of truth is always <clears throat> bidding the soul that abides in the truth to come and see the truth in which it abides, to come and comprehend reality as it truly is, so that that soul will stand in the assurance of what God has done in it instead of stand in limbo, because that's where man will leave you at all times. Uh, that's where most Christians live, in that state of limbo, where they don't have anything sure to really step on. There's no real basis to stand upon as far as they comprehend. But the Spirit of God would make known that there's a firm foundation upon which we stand. It's an eternal salvation that keeps us and anchors us and holds us in place. And it's that immense, glorious reality that God would open our hearts to. And that's the prayer that Paul is praying. He understands that his ministry is basically that to point to reality and pray for them to see the reality he's pointing to, to declare to them what is real and say, now God himself has to make known to you how real this is because he shows you the man, the person, the life, who makes it real, because as long as you're the object that is being pointed to by gospels or doctrines, it, none of it's real as far as you're concerned, because you know your own fragility, you know your own, you know, you know you. <laughs> so if salvation hinges upon you in any way, you, you hold up the red flag or the yellow flag and you say, wait a minute, none of this makes sense. But when you are presented with a man in whom God's predetermined purpose is fulfilled and realize that in that man we are found, we live and move and have our being there, that the man that God looks to and says, this is my satisfaction, this is my Sabbath rest forever, then we can understand that there is that man that the soul is called to know. There is that man that the soul is called to fully and accurately see as salvation defined eternally, perfectly. 
And so the soul that is aware of such a thing can live in rest and assurance. And that soul begins to truly grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. I don't know if you heard the Sunday session last where I talked about spiritual growth and what that is, but true spiritual growth. And if you haven't, I would, I would recommend, I think I put it on as a podcast, uh, the last one. Spiritual growth is not what we've thought. Most people think spiritual growth is almost to the point where we grow to such a degree by the workings and the processings of whatever happens or, you know, God processing us to the point where we grow to the, to, to an extent where we barely need the grace of God. You know, we've reached a level where we don't need much from God. We're there. We've arrived. And again, as Paul would say, if you think you know, you don't yet know. If you think you've arrived, you really haven't. When you realize that growing in the grace of God is being able to, is growing to an extent in the grace where you're able to truly rejoice and boast that none of this is of you. None of this is about you. That you're able to boast in the sufficiency of another that you're able to glory in the gift of God that is the life, the righteousness, the redemption, the wisdom of another man, and still feel as if you are full instead of being exposed weak because none of this is yours. None of this is about you. It's all him and his. When spiritual growth is actually happening, we can rest in the sufficiency of another instead of wrestle with the sufficiency of another because we're trying to be sufficient too. We're trying to be holy as well. We're trying to achieve something separate from the gift. But the growing in grace is that we would readily receive the gift, understand the immense mercy that is found in that gift, and Rejoice in it. Rejoice that it is not I but Christ. Don't, I mean, and in that, we'll begin to live in the assurance of what God has wrought. We'll begin to live as those whose hearts are filled with the knowledge of him and not the knowledge of ourselves or not the doubt in ourselves or the condemnation of ourselves. We will live as those who have no condemnation because we are found in a perfect man. And everything of our soul, everything of our standing before God is being defined not only in reality as it truly is, but in realization, everything of our soul's state of being is being defined and measured in Christ and not ourselves that's when growth is taking place and that we can not feel exposed as weak, but we can say in my weakness, his strength abides in my insufficiency, his sufficiency remains. And when there is that, as I said, in that lesson, that there will always be that constant need of grace for us. But where that constant need of grace as we abide in him is, there is the constant uh, provision of the grace because he's present. 
because he's there. That is also and true because we are found in him, because we are born of his spirit. The need as those who are born of his spirit is to see him as that reality, to see him as he is, to know reality defined in him and no other, so that we may rest assured, confident, and live in the assurance as an anchoring power that he is all in all. That when we are, that his grace is really and truly sufficient, and that we, as Paul would say, so I glory in my weakness because when I am weak, I realize that he tabernacles over me. I am clothed in him. I'm found in him. As Paul would say, I am found in him having nothing of my own. And you're able to rejoice in that. And that only comes as the soul is seeing him and recognizing the greatness and awesomeness of him as he is. And as we see him, the soul's expectation of anything from ourselves or our expectation of anything from ourselves will begin to dwindle away. And that's a wonderful thing. Because God himself, is smart enough not to have expectation of us. <laughs> the, the real need is for, for us to stop having an expectation in us and come to see God's expectation, his hope, fulfilled in the abiding life and presence of Jesus. And that's why the soul has to be open. Uh, uh, unveiled. That's why the light of God has to feel the heart to know even as it is known. Because there is a singular basis upon which we are known. There's a singular basis upon which we are related to. And that singular basis is God, is Christ himself and not us. And the more we are able to see that singular, unmoving, unchanging basis we are able to actually grow in the grace of God. We're able to actually proceed on to know as we are known and live in that. We're able to actually uh, boldly come to the throne of grace because we understand that it's just that. It is grace that is extended, that our whole existence and state of being in Christ is one of Grace. It is mercy being extended, not because we've, you know, ran hard enough or we, you know, have everything perfectly in line. All our ducks are in a row, as I said in that lesson. You know, I thought I'd said in the lesson, my half of my ducks died when I was trying to get them all in a row. And the others just swim in circles. <laughs> it's, it's never going to work. And if you and when you think it is, then you can rest assured it's not. It'll you'll soon hit the wall and realize it's not so. But there's a reality in which there is nothing missing, nothing lacking, nothing wrong. And that's where we are. And that's why we are called to come and see the man in whom we live, the one who is our life. That's where all things are perfect. 
pure. So to understand something of the hope unto which we've been called, and I want to emphasize the phrase, uh, I use the particular translation to be able to emphasize the phrase. A lot of the translations use it, but the English Standard Version uses it, and it, and it says it is the hope into which we have been called or invited. And what that means for us is that hope is actually described here, not something that is uh, a, a future hope for better things, some idea we have for better things to come one day, not that type of hope. Hope, salvation, that is basically hope realized, is being translated into the one singular hope, the expectation that God set forth eternally in himself as something preordained, what he had as his expectation eternally, and that hope that was due to that eternal hope, testimonially set forth in his people by the scripture, what we read in the testimony. You see that hope over and over and over set forth spoken of. So, and we'll get to that as, as we go on, but because it's going to become important when we get into his further explanations in the, in the coming chapters in Ephesians, when he begins to speak about the Jew and the Gentile, because this all points to that as well. He's wanting to show the Jew and the Gentile where they are, that they're not two separate things. We don't have a Jewish salvation and a Gentile salvation. We have one salvation. And our salvation is the fact that we've been brought into one hope, one body. And that's what he'll say in Ephesians 4. Uh, let's go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, we'll read verses 7, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. And we'll read, uh, I think, verse 4 and 5 here. Uh there is one body. Now listen to how he makes this a singular reality. This is important from what he said previous in the chapters we'll eventually get to and what he'll continue to say. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. This is again, the English standard version. You were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all, through all, in all. See, when he speaks of this one hope that belongs to the call, that hope into which we have been invited, that, that has to cause us to reach back again to the hope that God set forth in the totality of the testimony a hope of salvation, a hope of righteousness, the hope of a Messiah, the hope of the kingdom, the hope of righteousness, the hope of the spirit. I mean, the law itself was just one huge hope set forth in the midst of them because it was a testimony of a perfect righteousness that God would give to them in the coming of Christ. There's the hope. And he set it forth in their midst. And when he says, you have come to this hope, and my desire is that you would 
comprehend the hope that he has called you to. We have to realize there's not a hope for the Jew and a hope for the Gentile. There's one hope into which we've been called. There is one expectation and always has been. So uh, I was reading in the Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary, he says this, the oneness of the spirit in the church, the one body is shown by the receiving of the oneness of our hope. So instead of separate classes as under the law, there is a unity of dispensation that now brings all things common as privileges to the Jew and the Gentile alike. What he's saying is that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, what we read of in uh, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, we don't have separate classes. We don't have God dealing with a Jew one way and a Gentile another way. We have God bringing all things, culminating Jew and Gentile under one headship, as we've talked about already, in Christ Jesus, both heaven and earth, in one man. And in that one man, both Jew and Gentile, all who have believed, have come to the one hope fulfilled, the one hope that God set forth. And we'll read verses about that in a moment. Now realize, so that Jew and Gentile are both able to partake, you know, mutually partake of the hope or the expectation that God set forth, the promises that God set forth realized in that one man, in one body, the church. So when we read these verses, you see Paul presenting the unity that ensures all things to us. It's a union that has rendered all distinctions, Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. It rendered all of those, those distinctions, those places where men could boast. It rendered them all obsolete. And here we're seeing how the invitation for all, as he says, many are called, is unto or into one body, into one spirit. Not many, not even two distinct or separate groups. And having come into this one body by one spirit, we are made partakers of one hope. We are called into one hope realized, defined, governed by one Lord, one faith, through one baptism that we all partake of in being baptized into Christ, and we are found of one God, known of one God and Father of all. And what you recognize while reading this letter is how Paul simplifies spiritual reality, condenses all of the things of our salvation, of righteousness in Christ, into one. He leaves nothing within the distinctions of flesh and blood. He removes it all from those distinctions in men in which men can find their place. And for the entirety of salvation, Paul shows it to be embodied in the beloved in whom we have been graced, or the word is accepted in the King James, but it means to be graced. We have been graced in the beloved. And the grace that we have received in the beloved is the hope that God had eternally realized. That is salvation fully and utterly, perfectly defined. God's gift 
fully, immeasurably bestowed. And that's why the soul has to see. That's why the soul has to eternally behold that gift, because we have to see this is not of me. This is of him. And that's, again, that's the work of the Trier. That's the work of the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth is going to show you a reality as it truly is, according to the truth, which means everything the spirit of truth reveals to your soul or reveals in your soul will not have you as its, as its uh, central object or measuring, defining reality. It will be not of you, it'll be of him. If it is of you at all, ever, listen to these words, if it's ever of you and you think the Spirit of God has revealed it to you, he has not. If he has revealed something to you and you say, oh, God showed me that, and you are the object of it, you are the means of it, your production has to do with it, your goodness has anything to do with it at all, it is not revealed of God because he is the Spirit of truth. And he does not work upon the basis of my works, my efforts. None of that is truth. The truth is he is all. The truth is I am that I am. He will testify of me. He will make me known unto thee. That's the truth upon which the spirit of God works in. Nothing he reveals will have my face in it. It will be defined in him and him alone. The singleness of salvation will be revealed in the singleness of the spirit. He will show us the one. He will not show us many. He will not show us anything other. He will not divert our attention from the perfection of the abiding indwelling Christ. He will make known whom God has gifted to the soul. That's his work. That's the work that we are subject to, depended upon, so that we will not be diverted and, and, and deceived by men to look at ourselves, to be caught up in the traps that we've all been caught up in, where something of our salvation has something to do with us and our works and our efforts and the sweat that we, you know, impart into it. No, it doesn't. It is a work of God that has been done in you because he is good. Because he is a God of love. He is a father of mercy. And he has given to your soul what your soul was not able to achieve itself. He has brought you from death unto life. That has nothing to do with you. He has brought you from, from sin to righteousness. He has brought you to a state of condemned, to uncondemn. He's brought you into a condition where it can be said of us, or uh, brought us into a condition where it can actually be said of us wholly and without blame. Who's big enough, strong enough, good enough to do that? Amen. What in the world have I done to ever achieve that? I mean, we're not talking holy and without blame as men define it. We're speaking of holy and without blame as God defined. If that was a man's definition, then, hey, I have a shot at it. If it's God's definition, there's no way. And we have to understand that when we're in Christ and we're speaking of holy and righteous and spiritual matters, we're always dealing with God's definition. 
God's meaning of it all, God's perspective with regard to it. And so it's important to see that Paul did not just merely desire for the believer's soul to be in right standing with God. He desired that they would have a God-given perception and perspective with regarding what it means to be in right standing with God. And you know what it means? The same thing it meant in the old covenant. I see the man who has come out of the holy of all, and he says, I am living. And because he lived, they were accepted. If he didn't live, there's no hope for it. That's what it means to have a right standing with God. We have a man who stands in the presence of God for us. And that's the man the Spirit of God's always showing and desiring for the soul to behold. And in that man, Paul is saying here in these verses, the Jew and the Gentile both have attained to that one hope and that God set forth in Scripture. The promises, the covenants, all the things that Paul speaks of in Romans 9 and 10 that they are missing because they have rejected Christ. They have received in him that one hope, and they have received that one hope in the one Lord through one faith, coming through one baptism. And he will go on to declare that we, as those who have received that one hope or in that one body, that we are to grow up into the one man who is the head in all things and come to comprehend that man whose body is defined by and measured by the fullness of the stature of Christ. Now, I realize that many people read those verses in chapter 4 of Ephesians, and they'll say, all of this is until is till we come to a perfect man, and they'll say, a mature man, and they'll then preach the necessity of becoming mature and mature Christians. That's not at all what this is talking about. It's speaking of a man that is of full age, because that's what the word means, but it's speaking of a man that is complete in his stature, complete in his measure, because it is Christ himself and the whole work of God. This is all till we come to the comprehension of that perfect man. That's the need that we would come to the comprehension of a man who is measured by the fullness of Christ, that is measured by the fullness of himself. And we'd see fullness defined in him. And what does he say after that? So that you will not be swayed and tossed to and fro by the doctrines of men. That's the warning. The need is to see Jesus. The need is to see salvation defined in him and not in ourselves. So to know the hope into into which we've been called is to really discern clearly and be able to enjoy that which God has called us to, invited us to, to see it as it truly is. And we'll talk about that here as we go. But I want to just take a second because I was reading this in the Adams Clark commentary and he was going on into verse 17 and 18, where it speaks not only of the hope that he's called you to, 
but what is the riches of the glory of this inherit of his inheritance in the saints. I'm not going to take a lot of time on that because that's a big subject. Because he doesn't just say that you're what is the you know glory of the inheritance. He says it like this was the riches of the glory of his inheritance that is in the saints. That's a big deal. And we'll take some time and talk about that. But we have, again, what makes that inheritance certain? Well, because it's his. And again, we, we won't take tonight and go there because I want to talk about this hope, this calling. But I do appreciate the way Adam Clark says it here in his commentary, because we'll, we'll touch on it in just a second. He says that you may understand fully what is the glorious abundance of the spiritual things to which you are now entitled. And I sat for a moment and I thought about that and I thought, man, that is, that's really a good way of saying it. And then he goes on and he says, by consequence of being made children of God in Christ. And then he says, for if children, then heirs and heirs of the inheritance which God has provided for the saints. And again, that's a beautiful way. I begin to think about that word entitled. The Jews always thought they were entitled. When Jesus comes, they think they're entitled to the things of God. They are the people of God. Jesus comes as God himself. He comes as the heir to all the things that were promised. And yet they boast in their entitlement of being children of Abraham and, you know, having the law and all of that. So there was a sense of entitlement that they had due to their natural birth and their heritage, being the people of God for so long. But what we're seeing in these verses is how it is in Christ by faith, Paul is showing, and through grace, that men, whether they're Jew or Gentile, actually become entitled to partake and receive the promised inheritance. And it, see, this will flow in what we'll state about the inheritance and how it is actually his inheritance in the saints. And that's what makes it real. That's what makes it uh, stable. That what That's what makes it not capable of being taken away because it doesn't belong to me. If it's in my hands, it's fragile. If it's in my hands, it's not there to stay. It can be ripped out of my hands very quickly. But if it's his inheritance that is in the saints, that's a different thing. See, that's when the heir himself has received what belongs to him, and then we are found in him, having nothing of our own. That means also the inheritance. The inheritance doesn't belong to me. It's given to him. And him being in me makes me a partaker of the inheritance that belongs to him. So, again, that's a big subject. We'll get into it as we go. But he is born of God, okay? Paul is a man who is devoted to the law, devoted to the law of righteousness and all that it promised, as far as he assumed. 
he is now born again, born of God. Christ is revealed in him, and he recognizes that no man is just in the sight of God, and therefore no man in the sight of God is entitled to any spiritual reality at all. He's not entitled to it by his natural birth, by his works of the law, no matter how perfect those works may be, flawless their execution may be. He sees the one true heir, and he recognizes that this one is the only means by which the inheritance is partaken of. He realizes that the heir himself receives from God what belongs to him. God does not share it that inheritance with another. He gives it to one. And that one calls to all who will be found in him, calls to all those who will actually partake of the promises of the inheritance fulfilled. And those who will come to him and receive him as the heir of God, as the promises of God fulfilled, as the seed of God that God set forth in the testimony. They will receive in him that inheritance that God had set forth in the testimony in its perfect and full, complete embodiment. That also reaches back into the hope. That was the, that was the, the hope that they had. It was the inheritance that God was going to give. This was the hope. And so he sees the one in the seeing of Jesus as the true heir and realizes that the receiving of that one is the only way, it's the only attribution by which we are deemed worthy or entitled to partake of the inheritance, the promises, the covenant, all the things he lists in Romans 7. That's the only thing that makes you worthy of. Is to be found in him, to receive him. That was the whole thing, right? He came to his own, his own received him not. It says there, actually, the first he came to his own, it's actually the things that belong to him. He came to his own things as the heir. <clears throat> but the people to whom he came did not receive him. So, those who received him, he gave him power to become sons of God. Why? Because it was all about him, not about them. It was about the heir coming to receive what belonged to him by promise. It's never about them. It was about him. And what was about them, what God promised them, what was set forth as the hope throughout the whole of the scripture was that they would be found in him, that they would come to him and receive in him the inheritance. Colossians says it this way. It's always puzzled me, these wordings, but now it makes perfect sense. Or he says in Colossians chapter one, verse 12, giving thanks to the father who has, this is from the new American standard, giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You hear that word? Who qualified. See, I always balked at that word. I always thought, I don't even like the thought of that word because it's too much like, you know, I'm qualified and I have, 
but look who did it. God the Father qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Where did, what, is that con, what is that qualification? How did that qualification, entitlement, come? Verse 13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and even the forgiveness of sins. And before he even gets into that, he says, just like Ephesians 1 says, I do not cease to pray for you that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and the wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's verse 9. What we're reading is verse 12. It, it starts here because he understands God has qualified us to share in this inheritance, but how did he do that? Through the bringing us from darkness into the kingdom of the dear son bringing us out of the domain of corruption until the righteousness of a perfect man in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's speaking there of the things we have, and those things are part of the inheritance. Redemption, forgiveness of sins, righteousness before God, right standing before God. And notice, he's the one that qualifies. We didn't qualify ourselves. We didn't make ourselves worthy of it. We become worthy of it because we're now found in the son himself. That's the only qualification we have. That's why it would be said, he that hath the son hath life. He that hath not the son hath not life. There's your qualification. The only thing that makes it life or death is being in the beloved found in him. There's the work of God. So as we go on, we'll continue to look at that inheritance, but uh, let's return for a second to the calling. Um, and to do that, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we've talked about this several times. Verse 24, and I won't stay on this very long, probably have used most of my time just getting to this, but uh, yeah. But unto them which are called, this is chapter one, verse 24, speaking of again, our being called into the hope. Unto them which are called, both Jew and Gentile, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brother, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Base things and things which are despised he hath chosen, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are so that no flesh should glory in his presence. But if him are you in Christ Jesus, same, it's kind of like the same wording, but it is him who has qualified us. Of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So you see your calling, brethren. 
Here's our calling. This is the calling into this hope he's talking about. And these verses encapsulate a tremendously sobering aspect of salvation. This is a sobering look at your salvation. Because while so many attempt to hang their hats upon their level of wisdom, their strength, their you know, these words utterly undercut the significance of man's assumed pursuit, uh, you know, assumed importance in this whole thing. And if you think that we're important to this, it is just that it's a, it's an assumption. It's a false assumption. The Jews require a sign. It says the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks it is foolishness. Notice again what the what the Jew and the Greek seek. The Jew wants miracles. They want signs, wonders, external verifications that God's with them, displays of God's manifest power. Who I mean, most Christians want that today as well. Greeks seek to comprehend, to know something within the scope of man's intellect, his knowledge, his uh, philosophical pursuits. And this is the realm of man's progress. This is man's esoteric ascension, right? And Paul, in these words, neutralizes all of earthly, even assumed spiritual progress or, you know, higher progress and higher things. He neutralizes all of that by defining the power and the wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the cross. And what does that mean? Because to understand the nature of the calling and the hope into which we are called, you have to recognize the governing power of the cross as we approach these things. It's not of us. It's of him. That's the governing power of the cross. Everything that men look for, Jew or Gentile, the power, the miracles, the manifest evidence of God's power, the knowledge, the comprehension, the, the ascending uh, intellect, the wisdom, he says it's all truly defined in Christ crucified. Christ, who is the power and the wisdom of God. So in the nullifying of all of man's efforts and pursuits and intellect and wisdom and shows that God's over it all, what he's done is put a sobering slap in the face of man's self-centered approach to anything of spirit, anything of God, and wants them to see their calling. He wants them to understand the calling with which they've been called, and this immediately shows the calling of God is void, as we said earlier, of any expectation toward man by God at all. Our calling is governed by the cross. We're called into a full, fulfilled intention of God. That which was, as it said, preordained in a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This thing has always been over, the overarching reality of all of this has been Christ crucified. This has never been about 
displays of man's efforts. This has always been about God in his son performing and bringing about in Christ all things through the work of the cross. The nature of the calling of God is defined as of God are you in Christ. He's the source of it. He provides the fullness of spiritual blessings as Christ being made unto us. This is the thing that overpowers man's desire for miracles and man's desire for wisdom. You know why? Because this Christ being made unto you all things is the ultimate display of both power and wisdom. It's the ultimate display of both encompassed in one work of one man. And that reality is made to be our salvation in the reality of not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the governing power of the cross. And our calling provides one singular ground of boasting, and that is him and him alone. And before we continue to <clears throat> go on to the aspect of that calling, we got to have a glimpse, and I'll stop here, but we've got to take a glimpse of the hope into which we've been called. And we'll talk about this just a little bit. The, the, the hope into which the grace of God invites the soul. You remember we did that session, the, all of those multiple sessions in Psalms 119. And he talks about this hope quite, quite often. And throughout that psalm, the, basically what he's doing is taking the testimony, he calls it the ordinances, the, the commandments, he calls it, you know, the, the precepts and all of that. He takes it, but he's speaking about the law, the testimony, and showing how great it is and his love for it. And in the midst of saying all that, he speaks concerning the hope that he has in it and the hope that it provides him. So in Psalms 119, verse 48, just to read a few of those. So we'll look at this hope. My hands, uh, 119, 48 and 49. So my hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. And he's speaking of God, fulfill what you have said. Remember your word unto your servant that which your word has caused me to hope on. Speaking of a hope that the scriptures gave, an expectation that was set forth in it. And then in uh, verse 80 to 83 of Psalms 119, let my heart be sound in thy statutes that I be not ashamed. My soul faints for your salvation. That's a man waiting for it, looking for it, fainting for it but I hope in your word. I'm waiting and longing for it, but my hope is found in your word. That's true. That's the hope that the word itself, the scriptures itself gave. And then he says, mine eyes fail for the word saying, when will you comfort me? Remember in Luke, Simeon was waiting on the comforting of Israel, the consolation of Israel. He was waiting on that. Why? Because the scriptures gave this as a hope and God told him, this is what's going to happen before you can go away. He's coming. That's what all this is about. A soul fainting 
And this is how he speaks of his soul fainting. Remember this. I am become like a bottle in the smoke. An empty skin that is hung over the fires and becomes soot and black and dry. That's a soul before the coming of Christ. That's a soul before the bestowal of such salvation that the scripture set forth as the hope. And as that dried up bottle, he is saying, I hope in your word. I faint for your salvation. And then in verse 116 of Psalms 119, he says this, uphold me according to your word that I may live. There's the whole of the answer. I want to live. Life is the end of it. And let me not be ashamed of my hope. Those that believe in him, the New Testament says, they will not be ashamed. Those who believe and stand upon this foundation, this rock, and not be offended by this rock will not be ashamed. So we're seeing how the law and the commandments, the ordinances set forth this singular hope. And yet those who were given that hope by God in a state that, you know, they... Okay, they were given this hope, but the state they were in, dead in sin, uh, corrupt, all of that, slaves of sin, the hope they were given, they were given it in a state that made it look impossible. How in the world is this going to ever happen? And here's the reason. It was it was designed of God for that, and we see it stated in... Uh, uh, with regard to Abraham in Romans chapter four, where it says in verse 18 of Romans four, who against hope believed in hope, meaning it looked absolutely hopeless. It didn't make any sense that he would have hope, but his belief was in a hope that God had given in an expectation God had set for. So against it, it against all the things that looked probable, he still says, I will trust in him. Why? Because God said to him, a father of many nations, you will be. And being, verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. Now that's a bad translation. We've talked about this. It actually means that he looked at his body, recognized it was dead, recognized that he was incapable of doing anything God had promised, he was incapable. He was not capable at all. Even his wife, Sarah's womb was dead. His body was dead. How is this ever going to happen? Looks impossible. But in that, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded. Here's the persuasion. And this is the persuasion that we grow in and the confidence that we grow in as we see Jesus who lives in us. We realize we are fully persuaded more and more that he that promised was the only one capable of performing. Now for us who are in Christ, the persuasion is not, hey, if he promised it one day, he's the only one that's going to be able to do it. What for us is true is that the God who promised it is the one who has performed it. 
is the one who has brought it about. He's made it so. And because he was confident and fully persuaded of that, because that's faith, it was imputed to him for righteousness. And he, he goes on to say, and it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but it was for us to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. See, in the context of these verses, we see that the hope, not as this abstract theoretical thing, it is a hope, an expectation realized within the scope of an eternal state of being, a realm of existence wherein all that is impossible for men what men could not produce fully abounds and is provided by the power and work of God himself. This is the hope of the people of God. It is a hope of a righteousness imputed, not produced. It is a hope of a standing with God that is found and defined perfectly in another man and not in perfected men. And this is the singular hope in which the calling of God has set our feet. This is the hope in which we stand as a fulfilled reality. So we stand in this grace and we rejoice, as he says in chapter five of Romans, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That doesn't mean we rejoice hoping the glory of God will show up. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that has come. Who is that? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's our rejoicing. Not as a promise yet to be fulfilled, but a hope realized through new birth. See, we by new birth have entered into a realized expectation, a hope fulfilled. And what is that? It is the hope that all men had, all men who were like a, a, a bottle in the smoke, all men who are fainting for salvation, as the psalmist says. It is a full deliverance from the vanity and the emptiness of human corruption by being found in the risen one himself. This is, this is what you know. Romans 8 talks about in that hope that God had when he subjected creation to its own vanity. That creation had one hope. And that was for the moment in time to come where they would be delivered from such subjection, such incarceration to their own emptiness, but be filled with the fullness of another and thus enjoy the true liberty of the sons of God. Now, that's just a big umbrella. <laughs> we'll have to look at it closer as we go. But... I hope this has made a little bit of sense. Uh, so we'll stop there, guys.